Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. This podcast is brought to you by PrimeMed. Juan is a 53-year-old male with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. He has decided that he doesn't want to be on so many medications and is motivated to change his lifestyle to achieve that goal. For the last six months, he's been limiting his calories and trying to move more. Unfortunately, he's only lost four pounds during that time, and his A1C has not come down below 8%. Juan wants to know how best to change his eating habits to have a big impact on his A1C. What's the best way for Juan to change his diet? Hi, this is Frank Domino. Joining me today is Jillian Joseph, physician assistant and instructor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the UMass Chan Medical School and adjunct faculty in the Department of PA Studies at the MCPHS University both in Worcester, Massachusetts. Jillian is also the course chair for track one of PrimeMed's primary care bootcamp for NPs and PAs, an on-demand curriculum that helps early career clinicians build confidence, hone skills, and succeed. Good morning, Jillian. Good morning, Frank. I'm I'm excited for Juan. Um, Number one, he's coming to you saying, I want to take less pills. And two, how can I change my behavior? So, How do we start with Juan? What's the best way to advise him? Well, Juan is a primary care provider's dream come true, I think, right? I am also very excited for him. Um, And first would for sure give him big congratulations on having the motivation and desire to make those lifestyle changes. He definitely deserves a lot of credit for that alone. Nutrition is such a tricky topic in primary care. There's never enough time to really cover it thoroughly and level of expertise varies significantly because educational experiences have changed so much over time. So it's really important to have a good referral network for registered dietitians so that patients can get help with developing a more detailed plan and have time for follow-up. But that being said, we certainly can dig in a little during this visit to give him some general guidance. So we need to start by assessing Juan's nutritional history. What's his current eating pattern is the big question. The pattern is important because evidence from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services 2018 guidelines tells us that the overall pattern of someone's eating is more predictive of overall health and risk than individual food or nutrient choices. So I try to start by first asking for a 24-hour recall and being sure to ask specifically about snacking, alcohol, and sugar-sweetened beverages. Then I talk about what are some realistic goals for the patient regarding weight loss, so making sure they understand that half to one pound per week is reasonable, making sure they're able to commit to and sustain whatever changes they make, and what are their goals for incorporating or increasing physical movement. It's also crucial to use non-stigmatizing language when discussing weight. That's a really difficult topic for so many people. And we have to think about what disordered eating patterns might exist. So some helpful questions to get around that might include asking about someone's relationship with food, how they feel about their body, and how much time in the day they spend thinking about food. 
If there's time, I try to talk briefly about the current guidelines. So following a healthy pattern of eating that focuses on variety, nutrient density, and amount of food, limiting calories from added sugars, reducing sodium intake, and leaning into or shifting toward healthier choices to support an overall healthy lifestyle. Education is helpful too, based on specific disease, like in this case, diabetes and hypertension, but you also have to be mindful about cultural expectations around food, socioeconomic status, and what resources patients might have access to. You know, we know that like one in three adults have uh, problems with obesity, one in six teens, and we just don't get a great deal of training. So I love that you say asking patients about their relationship with food and how they feel about their body. Um, What are some of the more commonly advised eating patterns that we can suggest to one or that are available for one? Yeah, we know that poor diet is associated with major health risks and eating healthy in a healthy pattern has been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, some cancers, maybe even some neurocognitive disorders. So there's definitely a lot of benefit. An overall healthy eating pattern should include fruits, vegetables, protein, dairy, grains, and oils, while limiting saturated and trans fats, added sugars, and sodium. So developing a healthy eating pattern can be based on calorie or nutrient needs. So some people might benefit from focusing on fats or carbohydrates and choosing a pattern based on minimizing those macronutrients depending on their goals. In recent years, time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting has become much more mainstream. A few studies from the last few years have highlighted that overall, time-restricted eating isn't any better in the long run than calorie-restricted eating patterns regarding weight loss, specifically for people with obesity. But there are lots of people that will tell you they feel better with time-restricted eating, and others will promote this pattern for its supposed anti-inflammatory effect. It can be hard to maintain, though, and there isn't a lot of evidence around long-term adherence. Barriers cited often include work schedules, social events, and family life. Yeah, it's so interesting how uh, time-restricted eating can work, but we've got to make it long-term. It does sound like it provides structure. Can you talk a little bit about uh, time-restricted eating for people with type 2 diabetes? What's the data? Yeah. While time-restricted eating might not be better than restricting calories for people with obesity, it definitely makes a difference for those with type 2 diabetes. So in October 2023, there was a randomized controlled trial published in JAMA Network Open that looked at 75 participants from Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black, non-Hispanic white, and Asian backgrounds with a mean of 55 years old, mean age of 55 years old, mean BMI of 39, and a mean A1C of 8.1%. So these 75 participants were randomized to one of three groups an eight-hour time-restricted eating group from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. without any calorie restriction, calorie restriction group, whereby they reduced their calorie intake by 25% of their baseline energy needs based on the Mifflin equation, or the control group, which is just usual eating habits. So the primary outcome of the study was percentage change in body weight in all groups by month sixth. 
So since participants used CGM or monitored finger sticks throughout the study, they were also able to look at secondary outcomes like changes in A1C levels, time and glycemic range, mean glucose level, body composition, lipid levels, and some other measures. What I thought was really great is nearly all the participants completed the study. So out of the 25 in each group, there was respondent data from 22 to 24 of those participants, and no serious adverse events were reported. What they showed was that the eight-hour time-restricted eating group had greater weight loss when compared with calorie restriction and control. However, A1C reductions were similar in the time-restricted eating group and the calorie-restricting group compared with control. Participants in the time-restricted eating group found it easier to adhere to the plan and had greater overall energy restriction compared to the calorie-restricting group. It's important to note that people who adopt a time-restricted eating pattern will likely need medication changes if they're taking sulfonylureas or insulin for their diabetes. The study does have some limitations, so it was a relatively short time duration of just six months, and they didn't blind the participants. They also noted that a higher percentage of participants in the time-restricted eating group were using SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 medications at baseline, but participants did have stable weight prior to the enrollment. The dietary intake was also self-reported, so there's probably some inaccuracy on the estimates of energy intake. Wow. Okay. I, I've always been hesitant on time-restricted eating. This is interesting data. What are we going to offer Juan today? He'll probably benefit from time-restricted eating if he thinks he can fit it into his life and current schedule, especially if he thinks he can maintain these goals for six out of seven days of the week and commit to at least three to six months especially since he's looking to decrease his medication use, right? That was his primary um, concern for today's visit. This would be a good plan for him because he'll need adjustments to his sulfonylureas and or insulin, which would be in line with his goals. And it's especially important for him to know that while there's no calorie restriction for time-restricted eating, it is important to emphasize continuation of overall healthy eating patterns and choices within that time-restricted period and making sure that he knows he has the option to see a registered dietitian at some point will also likely be helpful for him. That's great. Jillian, great data. Thanks so much. Thank you. Practice pointer. Time-restricted eating patterns can provide a benefit of weight reduction compared to calorie-restricted eating patterns for people with type 2 diabetes and lower their A1C as well. Join us next time when we talk about the new portfolio diet and the simple way to help your patients live better and longer while lowering their cardiovascular risk. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim CME credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, follow the link in the description. To stay up to date on the most recent clinical research and news, please subscribe to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine and be sure to check out primed.com for additional CME content.